from the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast takes a look at a subject that has surprisingly been relatively absent from Shakespeare scholarship, the custom of making up music to go along with the lyrics in Shakespeare's plays. The majority of the plays call for singing. Sometimes it's part of the action, sometimes it seems to spring out of nowhere. And while the lyrics to the songs appear to have always been part of the text, the musical notes those lyrics were to be sung to have been lost over the years. One of the few people who has written on this subject is David Lindley, Professor Emeritus of Literature and Music at the University of Leeds. He joins us for a tour of this 400-year-old tradition. We call this podcast, I Prithee Sing. David is interviewed by Neva Grant. Um, could you tell me, how old is musical notation as we know it today? Did, did they even have it in Elizabethan times? Oh, certainly, and had for two or three centuries beforehand at least. I mean, there are traces of Greek notation, though nobody quite knows what they mean. But by the 14th century, uh, notation was around and quite complex. By the 16th century, it was being printed as well. You know, there's printed music, printed notation, which we can recognise now. And in Shakespeare's time, did they have the tools for a printer to print musical scores? Yes, they did. Uh, I think they were engraved, um, but the music printing was relatively new in England. But it had, at the end of the 16th century, begun to take off and people were buying the music from Italy and so on early in the 17th century, buying the madrigals and so on and singing them at home. So there is printing and and we can find musical notation and, and it's being published. So then why is there no musical notation in the first folio, in, in Shakespeare's first collection of published plays? Uh, well, not only is there no notation in Shakespeare's plays, but I can scarcely think of any printed dr- dramatic text in which there is any notation. An exception would be Thomas Campion's Court Mask, uh, where he printed some music at the end. But I think music printing was probably expensive and most of the time people weren't necessarily interested in acquiring the exact musical score. I can make it more complicated than that um, in the sense that the songs, many of the songs anyway, would have been sung to tunes that were popular tunes that one might assume many readers would actually know and latch on to. And when you say readers, I guess you also mean the actors and the actors as well. Yep, yep. Oh, I think it's very likely that the actors, certainly in the earlier part of Shakespeare's career anyway, would get the script of a song, which included a song, and some idea of the popular tune to which those words were fitted. In the same way that the broadside ballad, um, the printed broadside ballad, would often say, to the tune of, but not print that tune. So you say it's very likely that this is the way the actors would have known the tune that they had to sing for a given lyric or a given set of poetry. Yeah. But how do we really know that? I mean, what clues do we have? Well, I think we, there are two or three different sort of clues. One is that quite a number of the songs are rather like popular songs. If you think of Ophelia's songs, um, that she bases, as it were, her lyrics are based on 
popular ballads, Desdemona's Willow song. There are lots of near parallels uh, to them, which suggest that Shakespeare's writing, as it were, with half an ear on that ballad. Now, I should say that just occasionally it would seem that Shakespeare borrowed a printed song so that he took, for example, It Was a Lover and His Lass in As You Like It, possibly came from the publication by Thomas Morley of that song roughly at the time that Shakespeare was writing. It was a lover and his lass With a hay and a hoe and a hay non me know That o'er the green cornfield did pass In springtime, the only pretty ring time when And when you say he took that song, you don't mean just the music. Are you talking about the lyrics in this case, that he actually sort of uh, pirated it? Possibly, um, quite possibly. This is one of the things we can't really be certain of. That song appears in a play written about 1600 and is published in 1600. So it is theoretically possible that Thomas Morley set Shakespeare's words and those, that was the song that was used in the first performance of the play. That's one possibility. When you say Thomas Morley setting Shakespeare's words, he was the composer. He, he, he was, was the composer. He was yes. writing the music, right? Yeah. And so he yeah. might have taken Shakespeare's words, but it, it seems like you're suggesting it could have worked the other way around, right? It, it could e- equally well have worked the other way around. Or another possibility is that in the text that we have, the song, It Was a Lover and His Last, that particular set of words might have been inserted at any time later on. Um, because one of the things about the song texts in many of the plays of the period is they change them as production, you know, as, as the plays lived on in the theatre, so the songs might be changed. I just want to spend a little more time on this song because I think it may be familiar uh, to some people. Um, it's from As You Like It. It's It's sort of a... It's a commentary on love, right? Yep. And it's sung, I believe, about two of the lovers in the play, Audrey and Touchstone. And it's got some lovely, I don't know quite how to describe them. I mean, in a way, they're sort of nonsense words. I mean, we're hearing hey nani no and, and, yep. and hey ding-a-ding. And it's delightful. And it's very, I think, characteristic of a lot of uh, songs of that period and magicals and so forth. Yep. In springtime, the only pretty time when birds do sing hey ding-a-ding-ding. Sweet lovers, love the spring. This carol they began that hour. The, the words are, well, they're not actually great words. They're, they're, they're quite jolly. And it's sung by two pages, as you say, with touchstone. But it's a very odd song in other ways in the play because there's no dramatic reason for it to be there. There's also the similar sort of question in Twelfth Night about Feste's singing of Come Away Death, which, if, if you remember what happens in that scene, is they first say, well, the Duke says, well, come, Cesario, that old and antique song we had last night, as if he's inviting Viola as Cesario to sing the song. Then somebody pipes up, oh, he is not here that should sing it, my lord. And Feste comes in. There's all kinds of improbabilities here. Mm-hmm. That Feste, the Duke, the, who's the clown? He sings other songs in the play. Yeah. But he seems. it seems to be at least possible that originally 
Cesario Viola was going to sing a song in this scene, mm. then for whatever reason, Shakespeare either had to or chose to change his mind. And so Feste is rather uncomfortably wheeled in to, to sing this song. <laughs> it, it works, and there's no doubt about that, but it, it's one of those things that academics get really worked up about, about whether this is a sign of revision. Shakespeare first started off with one in, intent and then either changed his mind or his circumstances changed and the mm -hmm. play was adapted. And, and songs are particularly vulnerable to that. Right. Be because quite often in a lot of the texts of the period... Um, it just says song. It doesn't even say what the song was. Yeah. I'm going to move us forward in history yep. a bit to the English yep. Civil War. Um, so apparently, so during this period, the Puritans uh, close the theaters for a while, yep. for several yep. years. So there's no Shakespeare <laughs> for a while happening anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then uh, during the Restoration, uh, Shakespeare's plays are being performed again. Um, but it's been a while since anyone has sung the songs that go with mm -hmm. those plays. So what happened? Um, were, were new tunes brought in at that time? New melodies? Well, it would seem so. There's two things there. One is that, of course, the plays themselves tended to be very heavily adapted. Um, often a lot more music was being introduced into them. But essentially, this music would be recomposed, new composed for the uh, performances. There are one or two songs where it's long been thought possible that theatrical tradition preserves even the pre-Commonwealth setting. The, the fact that Ophelia's song is sung to a, a tune rather like the tune, the ballad tune, Walsingham. That may be a continuous theatrical tradition. Mm -hmm. But it uh, sounds like you're saying, for the most part, um, the songs were no longer in the Elizabethan style. They they were moving forward. Yep, they'd be written very much in in the post-restoration uh, musical style. Well, let's talk about a composer during this period who I think uh, set many words by Shakespeare, and that would be Thomas Arne. Do I have that right? Yep. He's a bit later. He's um, half a century later. So we're into the second half of the, of the 18th century with Thomas Arne. But he was a hugely active uh, composer for the theatre during those middle years of the 18th century. And he wrote a number of settings of Shakespeare's lyrics which have survived both on stage but also as concert songs and, and, and so on um, as they do to this day. So you can still hear somebody singing on setting of Where the Bee Sucks on Radio 3 in the UK today. Where the Bee Sucks, that's from The Tempest, right? Yep, yep. By the time you get to the 18th century, well, even in the Restoration in the 18th century, the songs tend to be written in a way that demands that the person who performs them really is a singer. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll have long runs. Um, 
you know, on the bat's back I do fly sort of thing. And I think that has profound effect on the the way the songs function in the plays. If I'm not mistaken, I think I've seen playbills from this period that that would advertise the vocal capabilities of of the performers. Yeah, well, uh, yes, indeed. So you you would get advertised on the playbills. Ariel will be sung by such and such a, an actor, so that the the fact of the music and the singing was very important. Partly because, as I say, a lot of the 18th century adaptations of Shakespeare tended to add songs rather than take them away. You know, there's a song, I think, also from this period from a composer I had never heard of at all who was referred to, I think, as the English Mozart. His name was Thomas Linley. That's right, yes. The kind of lost genius of English music, really. Uh, His father was a theatre musician, and his son, Thomas Linley, was a precocious violinist and performer who turned to composing really very young. Uh, And he contributed music to a a revival of The Tempest under Sheridan's direction in the 1770s. And it's some wonderful music, I I think, and it's not just because his name's nearly the same as mine. Um, There isn't much of of his music that survives because he died at the age of 22 in a boating accident. So we never got to hear the best of Lindley, as it were. Hmm, but there's a beautiful recording uh, that I've heard from uh, from the Tempest called "Come Into These Yellow Sands." Yep, that's right. And it just as you say, it is a real piece, and you could imagine it being a showstopper. It's a very elaborate uh, mm-hmm. musical piece. written with a particular singer in in mind and there what you're getting whereas in a modern production we would tend to see songs as integrated into the action or expressive of the character of the particular individual that's singing them clearly this is a song which says i the singer can do great things
Now, you know, these elaborate performances we're talking about, do you think this might have happened initially by accident where someone sort of did this breakout performance and the producers were thrilled, the audience was delighted, and they said, hey, you know, let's make a habit out of this. People people like it. Uh, yeah, sort of. I, I think it was really that the, as it were, the fashion for opera was very strong, very powerful, and that that influenced the way in which people attended to dramatic performance. So, as I say, most of the adaptations of Shakespeare and comedy, in particular in the middle of the 18th century, all added more songs. You know, and in the same light, uh, as we're moving into the 19th century, the orchestras in theatres are getting bigger and bigger, which means altogether we're getting a grander sound. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, orchestra size varied. um, And in the 19th century, you might have an orchestra of as many as 30 players, which is reasonably substantial. And there would be strings, uh, oboes, clarinets, flutes trumpet drums but certainly that sense of the there being a real orchestra is one that that grows throughout the 19th century and at the same time i'm imagining that there's a considerable amount of time and expense involved in in writing these scores and adding all of this music so i'm guessing that producers would would rather than rather than sort of reinventing the wheel each time they would reuse musical scores Particularly in the case of Shakespeare, it seems to be. For a lot of new plays, they would get new music, new scores. But with particularly with Shakespeare, some settings at least um, had a continuous life. And by settings, you mean the music that was put to the lyrics, yeah? Yeah, uh, and certainly. It's more like, if we think about modern operatic productions, they will tend to revive a production Whereas if you think of uh, the RS, the Royal Shakespeare Company or whatever, they will do a new production every time they do a play. Well, I think the 18th century is much more like operatic companies, that a production would be staged and the scenery created for it, the music created for it, and then that production would have a a long life, relatively. Well, when you get into the 19th century particularly, what certainly has been the case in some of the production records I've looked at is that there'll be new incidental music, music that goes on under dialogue, but that the songs particularly would tend to have a continuous life that people would want to hear. Right. And isn't that such an interesting aspect of musical performance in that we want it, the audience wants it to be familiar, whether we're going to the Met or we're going to a rock concert. You know, we we Mm -hmm. want to hear the music as we remember it from the recording that we bought when we were teenagers, right? Yep. Well, I think it's one of the interesting things, I think, about this whole question of the music of Shakespeare and its history is that tension between wanting to hear the familiar and being pleased to hear the new. So as as we move into the 20th century, what's happening? We are starting now to hear in Shakespeare's productions music that, that would be reinvented each time or perhaps almost every time. Well, in certainly in the, uh, you know, say the Royal Shakespeare Company or the uh, no doubt in the Oregon Shakespeare Festival or the the big places that do Shakespeare. That is almost universally true, I think, now. Though, 
again, there's two different ways in which you can go, aren't there? You can ask a composer to write a new score, which includes new settings of the songs, or you can compile a score from existing material. So you quote bits of anything, really, that that suits the mood that that you want to create. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sort of sense? Well, it does make sense, and I think this would be a great place to hear uh, another example. Um, There is, for example, I I, I think you wrote about this in an article, a version of The Tempest, uh, where the actor uh, and singer Ian Charlson is uh, is featured. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, there was... Uh, an RSE production um, Royal, for which, Royal Shakespeare Company Royal, sorry, Royal Shakespeare Company um, for which Guy Wolfenden, their music director, wrote the music I mean he actually is one of the people in the world one of the composers, theatre composers in the world, who composed music for every single Shakespeare play many of them twice, I think there's about half a dozen uh, musicians of whom that's true but he wrote this I think very atmospheric um, song for Ariel which was sung as um, Charleston as Ariel descended from on high and he sang this uh, invitation to Ferdinand Common to these yellow sands Come on to yellow sands and then take hands cutsied when you haven't kissed the wild waves and it was accompanied by the Royal Shakespeare Company's wind band Mm-hmm. And luckily, a, a recording was made because the other thing about most theatre music is it it vanishes. But in this version, because we have a recording, we can hear how this sounds almost like a Broadway musical from the 1970s, something like Pippin or Shenandoah or something like that. It it has those elements. The watchdogs walk, a cock I The the production itself had a a very modernist set with a lot of black plastic by um, Ralph Coltai. Although the costuming, if my memory serves me right, was vaguely Jacobethan. And it's one of the interesting things to me that whereas uh, often uh, directors will set a play in a particular period, Elizabethan or 18th century or whatever, and be very precise about that historical context. But they will supply it with music that has no reference, necessary reference to that historical context at all. Tell me about some productions that are even more recent than that one. In other words, moving into the 1990s, which ones uh, stand out for you? Right, well, to continue the theme, really, of um, settings of common to these yellow sands and the, and the Tempest, one production that really impressed me, actually, was just at the end of the 90s, just to the, at the turn of the century, um, with music by Orlando Goff. And this music, very unlike the settings we've already heard, in that it was produced entirely by the voices of 
the actors and Ariel joins them in this quite funky setting of Come On To These Yellow Sands. had nothing to do with the period in which the production was set, which was vaguely 19th century, but rather this was music that was trying to imagine the strangeness of Prospero's island, full of sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not, as Caliban calls it. And I personally think that Orlando Goff managed to do it amazingly successfully, though, interestingly, and not all reviewers at the time agreed. Yeah, elements of this piece, is, as it develops, it sounds almost like jazz. Yes. Well, what's, what's interesting is I've, I've tried that piece on quite a number of people and said, how would you characterise this? What sort of music is it? And you get a lot of different answers. Um, that it, it seems to different people receive it in different ways. Um, but most, I think, find it very effective uh, as a means of creating a dramatic atmosphere. So this is at the opposite pole, really, from Lindley's setting, where you're saying, here's a singer giving a setting some welly, um, really singing it uh, elaborately, professionally, and so on. That's one end. I think the Orlando Goff is, at, in a sense, at the other end, it's saying, here's a setting which is very specifically designed to create an atmosphere Mm. And Ariel's voice is simply merged in with everybody else. Mm, it's fascinating. While you hear the two snoring You know, uh, Professor Lindley, in putting uh, this podcast together, we looked around for additional scholarship on this subject, and really, we didn't find a lot. And and you have pointed out that it's remarkable that very little has actually mm-hmm. been written about the contribution uh, music makes to Shakespearean performance history. And why do you think that is? I think there's several reasons. I mean, there are some very fine music histories which tell us about the number of performers, perhaps tell us what music was performed, but very little that thinks about how that music worked. I think it's in part a problem with the the survival of the archive. A lot of theatre music simply disappears. 
what happens to it, I don't know. Whether it's the music director puts it in his pocket or the composer takes it back. And, of course, even more difficult now when a good deal of music uh, in the theatre is computer-generated and doesn't turn into notation or whatever. But I think there's also a problem that while people are happy to talk about music in film, there is very much less fact hardly anything about theatre music and I think it's to to do again with the survival with the fact that you can't um, as you can with the film you can watch the film lots of times and hear the music and see how it works and you can analyse it if you think about a production in the 1960s you've got a prompt book with some music cues and you might have some of the music in musical score which you might or might not be competent to read so there's all kinds of barriers I think to writing about it which I think is a pity. But in in some ways does it also make it more interesting I mean I think as you've pointed out in the past it makes it a bit more like archaeology I mean you really have to go on a dig. You do yes that that's true well if you've got the patience and the time and so on it will probably get easier because i think as with everything else technology may make it possible to scan the surviving scores and reconstruct them orally so that you would be able to hear again music that otherwise you would have to look at a complete score for so uh, i think it may become easier to do in the future I know that efforts are beginning in that direction. Right. And do you ever hope uh, or or wonder whether someone might uncover some secret musical archive at some point and make your job a lot easier? Oh, yes. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? I mean, yes. Any academic dreams of certain kinds of find. And I suppose to find some of the earlier musical settings would be one of those things you think, oh, yes, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, I, I wish you the very best of luck in that in that endeavor. And um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. David Lindley is Professor Emeritus of Literature and Music at the University of Leeds. His book, Shakespeare and Music, appeared in 2006 in the Arden Critical Companion series. David was interviewed by Neva Grant. I, Prithee Singh, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Melissa Marquis at NPR in Washington and Gareth Dant in the University of Leeds Communications Office. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.